Well, the arrival and the spread of the coronavirus has certainly affected every single facet of our lives, uh, church included, obviously. Um, there's many ways in which the body of Christ, as we have grown to know it and to love it and to be part of it, uh, is gone. And we're not really sure when it's going to come back. We trust and pray that it will, but we really don't know when that will happen. And so in the meantime, we endure. And if you're anything like me, this realization that something significant has changed can be a little bit discouraging. It can be discouraging. I think back to a year ago, even just today, as we turn the calendar over to 2020 for the first time, I was thrilled with Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. Not that I'm not now, but there was exciting things happening, wasn't there? The, the church was growing, not only numerically, and it was, but also there was some spiritual vitality happening in this church that just excited and thrilled me. And then came March and April, and kind of the air kind of went out of the room, didn't it? It just was discouraging. And I know that's a very human perspective, but for me, it's been a temptation to avoid that, that discouragement and that frustration because of what's happened the last number of months. And yet, as a church, we're still a church, and so we're faced with the task of continuing on and doing churchy things. And the question is, you know, how do we do that? How do we keep going in light of the current circumstances? At, at Oak Ridge, our prayer and our goal as a church family is to be a church that is like family, Right, is to be, have that intimate relationship with one another that we can spur one another on toward love and good deeds. That's our, our goal, to be like family. But the question becomes, how can we be like family from afar? You know, how can we be a church family that spurs one another on, protects one another, encourages one another when we're nowhere near one another? How do we do that? How do we function as a body, which is what the New Testament describes us as, when the members of that body are torn apart? You know, how do we be an assembly, which is what church literally means, an assembly? How do we be an assembly when we are unassembled? We can't do that. There's something that has changed that stops us from being the church we are called to be. But that still, it leaves questions for us. How do we continue on? How do we take part in what God has called us to do when we are in a situation that is far, than, far less than ideal? And so over the next few Sundays, we're going to take a break from our current series in the book of Matthew, which we've been walking through on Sunday mornings. And, and I want to answer some of these questions together by looking at Scripture. What does the Bible tell us about being a church well apart, being a church well scattered? Are there things that have not changed in the face of all these things that have changed? And this morning, to begin this short little series, I want simply to remind us that this is not unprecedented. In the, in the history of, of the church, this is not the first time that the church has been met with scattering hardship. And today I want to go back to perhaps the first time it ever happened in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, wherever you are, turn with me to Acts chapter 8. And as you turn there, there, you'll realize that we are parachuting down into the middle of what is perhaps the most action-packed book of the entire Bible, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8. And so when we do something like that, it's very important to set context, because there's a chain of events happening in Acts, and if we just parachute down into the middle of it, we will miss the significance, perhaps, of the event we're going to look at. So as you turn to Acts 8... Allow me to set the stage, so to speak, for this text we're going to look at. Now, in the days between Jesus' resurrection from the dead and his ascension back to the Father, the Lord Jesus met with his followers for a number of weeks, and he taught them. 
And amidst this teaching, he gave them clear instructions on what he wanted them to carry out in his temporary absence. And this was basically the the assignment. Tell the world about me. That was the assignment. Tell the world about me. That is your task. Those are your marching orders. Tell the world about me. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says it this way. He says, you, my disciples, will receive power. You'll receive supernatural power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And with that power, you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, and to the outermost or remotest parts of the earth. There's these concentric circles going out. This was the task. Be my witnesses. Tell the world about me. And as promised, as we go on into Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit does arrive in Acts chapter 2, and it comes in dwelling and uniting and equipping God's people in a way that it was never before experienced before that time. Very unique to that time. And that's when the church was born. And this now supernaturally empowered people of God then went out into the world to carry out the assignment that Christ had given them before his ascension. Go and tell the world about me. Spread the news. Be my witnesses. You know, at first, as we read through Acts, it goes really, really well. You know, Peter, after the Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2, he stands up and he gives a sermon. And 3,000 people come to faith. Imagine that at the start of a movement. 3,000 people in one go, they come to faith. What an exciting first glance of the church. And then as we carry on in chapter 2, we come to this description of church life at the very beginning. At the end of Acts chapter 2, it says this, they, speaking of the church, were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. I mean, that sounds pretty good for the start of a church, right? That's a peaceful and and thrilling time to be part of the body of Christ. But if you've read the book of Acts or if you've sat in church any amount of time, you know that this doesn't last very long, does it? This exciting, peaceful time, it doesn't last very long because one of the facets of the message of the people of the early church, one of the things that they went out to say was to go to the Jews in Jerusalem who had not yet believed and say, hey, you know that Messiah that you've been waiting for? Yeah, y'all killed him. You killed your Messiah. And so you can imagine with this as their message and their growing popularity in Jerusalem, you know, opposition was just as much on the docket as conversion, right? People didn't like to hear that message that you killed your Messiah. And so because of that, because of their message and because of their growing popularity, I mean, 3,000 people in one go, there were people being converted to this movement. And because of all of this, tensions were rising in Jerusalem at the time. Tensions between the Jews and these these new Christians, these people indwelt by the Holy Spirit, there was tension growing. And as those tensions in the city continued to rise, we come to a story in Acts chapter 6 of a man named Stephen, who was a leader in the early church, a convert, a believer in Jesus, the Messiah. And he was dragged before the religious leaders of the day to be tried for blasphemy. 
because of what he was teaching, that this Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, and died for the sins and rose from the dead, the Jews didn't like that. Right? And so they, they haul him before the religious leaders and they try him. And in Acts chapter 6, we see the sham of a trial that this is. We have false witnesses giving false testimony before a tribunal of people who already had decided that he was guilty. It's an absolute sham. And then in Acts chapter 6, in Acts chapter 7, rather, facing his own death, Acts chapter 7, it records what Stephen says, and it's not in his own defense, it's actually in the defense of Jesus Christ and the message he bore that got him in trouble in the first place. And it's a wonderful chapter of Scripture. But he ends, chapter 7, he ends this address, this speech before the tribunal that has his life in their hands. He ends this way in Acts chapter 7, verse 51. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit, you are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. I mean, picture the scene. He is facing his own death, facing the people who have the power to do exactly that, and he doesn't take his foot off the gas. In fact, he twists the knife, and he says, it was you. You did this. And their response is expectedly not great. In verse 54, it says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. Verse 58, when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, which is exactly what it sounds like killing him by throwing big rocks at him until he stops moving. They began stoning him, and the, the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. It's a long way from Acts chapter 2, where they had favor with all the people. Right? It started out so peaceful and exciting, and now it's come to this. And as you go through Acts and you come to Acts chapter 8, it's almost as though Jerusalem was filling with this gas of religious animosity. And then we come to Stephen's martyrdom, his murder, his execution. It's like someone lit a match, and boom, all of a sudden things change. And it's with that explosion that we come to our text in Acts chapter 8. And as we work through the first eight verses of this chapter in Acts chapter 8, I'm going to give you three titles to hang on to that'll help us organize our thoughts as we go through this text. The first is tribulation, and then proclamation, and then celebration. Pretty easy. But these are three important handles that you can keep in mind to help organize this text. Tribulation, proclamation, and celebration. Now, as we begin reading Acts chapter 8, the tribulation the church is facing here is going to become quickly apparent. It's pretty obvious. You know, these Christians in the first century were forced to endure some great, great hardship. First, let's describe this tribulation. First, we see that they had powerful opposition. They weren't just facing a general ethos of discontent that people didn't like them very much, didn't tolerate their views or anything like that. No, no, it was powerful opposition. Look at verse 1 and how it starts. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. You've heard of Saul before, I'm sure, if you've been around the church any amount of time. You know, in, in chapter 7, verse 58, which we read just a moment ago, Saul was introduced for the first time. And he's a man that we're now told was in hearty agreement 
with Stephen's murder. Now, because we know the whole story, we know that this Saul character is eventually dramatically converted and God uses him to take the message of Jesus Christ to the remotest parts of the earth, right? He's used by God for great things. But here in chapter eight, he's not there yet. In fact, here he's just Saul who held onto the coats of the people stoning Stephen and who now was nodding in agreement as he cried out for the Lord with his last breaths. This is Saul who would later describe himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews, He is the guy. He is an up-and-comer in Pharisaic uh, religiosity. He is their golden child. He is uh, a rising star in the movement of Pharisaism in Jerusalem. And so we have this powerful opposition, and he has this new movement of Jesus followers right in his sights. He sees them, and he hates them. In fact, the church really has Paul, or Saul in this case, they're in his murderous crosshairs, and he wants to take them out, and he's got the full force of the Sanhedrin behind him. That is the religious leaders of the day, the governing body in Israel. They're all coming after the church. So again, this early church, you know, they're not just facing a general ethos of of culture that doesn't really like Christianity, or doesn't understand them, or kind of oppresses free speech, or whatever the case like that. No, no, no. This is the leaders of the day coming after the church, and they hate them as can be seen with the execution of Stephen, which directly preceded this. Now, as we keep reading in verse one, we see that it's not only powerful opposition that they're facing, but it's also this growing persecution. So it's not only the leaders, but it's actually many of the people in Jerusalem at the time. It says, and on that day, which day? The day of Stephen's death. On that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. Now, this great persecution, again, this is not just some general feeling of dislike for Christians. This is an organized, this is a a systematic oppression of the Christian people. This is the people going after Christians specifically to cause them harm, to mistreat them, to show their hatred of them, and to ostracize them. This is systematic. This is not just the culture doesn't really like them or understand them. They are going after this, a growing persecution on that day. Stephen's murdered and the bomb goes off and persecution begins to rise. And leading the charge is this this leadership, this uh, hardcore, powerful opposition. Now third, we keep reading. It's not only the persecution and the opposition, but it's also a forced relocation that's caused, right? Look at the end of verse one. It says, and they, that's the Christians, were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now you might ask, why were the apostles apostles exempt. There's many theories for that. Probably one of the best ones is that up until this point in Acts, the the religious leaders in Israel had already gone after the apostles. They'd put them in jail. They'd done everything they could to the apostles, the leaders of this movement. It didn't work. So maybe now they're shifting their focus to go after the laymen now, for lack of a better word, and leave the apostles alone. Whatever the case may be, the church is scattered because of this persecution. It's forced relocation. This oppression was so great in Jerusalem that, that the believers had to pack up their things, They had to pack up their families. They had to pack up their lives and they had to seek safety. Think of this. Like some of them had grown up in Jerusalem. This was their hometown. Their their families were there and they have to leave it all behind. And for some of them, many of them even, no doubt, they're leaving behind family members who didn't believe in Jesus that they didn't know if they'd ever see again. They're uprooting their lives and they are leaving because of this persecution. These are religious refugees being forced to relocate because of this powerful opposition 
and because of this growing persecution. So you can see why I labeled this tribulation already. We're not even halfway through this section. This is a tough time for the early church. Now let's add to this. As if that wasn't all enough, we also read in verse 2 that there was this lamentation, a legitimate lamentation. Verse 2. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. Now, at the time in Israel, it was illegal for Jews to mourn for people who were executed for the the charge of blasphemy. They deserved what they got. These Christian men didn't care. They let out a loud lamentation. Everyone could hear their grief. These are Christian people grieving him. Now, notice this. These are Christian people who know that they're going to see Stephen again, that know that Stephen went to be with the Father. They know all these things, and yet they are still grieved by the loss. Why? Because death is not what was supposed to be in place. This is a tragedy, and so they grieve. There's this loud, legitimate lamentation taking place. And finally, as we come to verse 3, we see in these opening verses that this church is also having to cope with this constant trepidation, this constant fear. Verse 3, but Saul, there he is again, began ravaging the church. This word is used elsewhere of a, a wild pig in a vineyard, just tearing up vines with no discrimination, just going nuts in this vineyard. And that's what Paul was, or Saul was doing here. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He didn't care. He's dragging them all off and he would put them in prison. And make no mistake, prison here is just a waiting room for a trial like that Stephen just faced. So it leads to death. He's just entering their houses, taking whoever he wants. Imagine that. I can't even comprehend what that's like. To live in a time when at any moment, any time of day, the front door of my house could be kicked in and people could come in armed, grab my kids, grab my wife, take us off to face capital charges at any moment. Imagine the constant sense of fear and anxiety. That is constant trepidation. That's what these people faced in the early church. So you can see, again, why this is tribulation in these first three verses that they're facing. In these first three verses, we see that really God allowed his church to experience this time of tribulation, though. He allowed for it. This time of hardship, this time of inconvenience, to say it mildly, this time of fear and loss and shame and rejection and abuse. The Lord allowed his church to experience this. Our our current state as a church has some similarities. I don't want to come that close to say that we are right in line with the early church. Praise the Lord that at this point, In Canada, we don't face some of the same things that they face. We don't face the powerful opposition or or the growing persecution, at least not yet, and at least not like the early church did. But at the same time, some of us, even in our church family, have experienced legitimate lamentation during this time. Legitimate lamentation. Loss that, that would have been grieved anyway. But during these last few months, have had to be grieved largely alone. That just exacerbates it, doesn't it? Having to do it alone, carry that burden alone, having to grieve with no one there on whose shoulder you can place your head. It's, it's legitimate lamentation. I, I performed a graveside service early in 2020 for a family um, which stood around the grave and wept. And it wasn't weeping only for the loss of a husband, a father, and grandfather, but they were also weeping because he died alone because they weren't able to go in and see him in his last days. And so he was alone for the week prior to his death. That's legitimate lamentation. And some people in our church family have experienced loss like that during this time. So we can come alongside the early church and say, legitimate lamentation, these devout men wailing for Stephen. We've experienced something similar in our church family. At least some of us have. 
There are many today, even Christians, who endured 2020 in a state of constant trepidation. We're not waiting for people to kick in our front doors, but at the same time, people are fearful of the potential illness and death. But not only that, people are fearful of loneliness and financial insecurity and educational uncertainty and vocational instability. There's all sorts of things that are are plaguing us with fear. And some of us have experienced that constant trepidation. And all of us have had to endure forced relocation. Some of us have had to move physically where we live, but we've all had to move where we work, play, socialize, worship. It's all changed. And along with that change comes you know, a sense of disorientation and a real loss that comes along with that. And so we've had this forced relocation. And as much as we praise God for the, the technology that allows for these sort of things, at the same time, Christmas morning on Zoom, relocated to Zoom, you know, is not only sad, but it's tragic and unhealthy if it continues. And in the same way, corporate worship relocated to YouTube It's not only unfortunate, it is tragic and it is unhealthy if it continues. At the same time, we praise God that we can do this, but praying that it does not have to continue. These relocations are forced relocations that we have to deal with. Again, we may not be facing exactly what the early church was at this time, but there are certainly similarities. We are scattered. We are scattered because of external factors and we've been forced into a less than ideal reality that we pray will come to an end soon, but at the same time, we pray that the Lord will help us endure while we're in it. Now, the question becomes, what do we do while we're enduring tribulation? This is upon us. It's been put on us. So what do we do to get through it? Well, what did the early church do? Let's look again at verse four and five. Therefore, after all of that tribulation, therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. See, while there was tribulation, certainly, there was also proclamation. Remember the second handle I said, tribulation and proclamation. While the church here was enduring hardship, there's no doubt, they were also unrelenting in their witness. Nothing was going to take them off that assignment that the Lord had given them before he ascended. What's interesting about these verses is that verse 5, it really is a restatement of verse 4, if you look closely, but in a more narrow focus, right? Luke, who's the author of of Acts, he moves from the church as a whole in verse 4 to an individual member of the church in Philip in verse 5. It's like saying that the family rang in the new year with cupcakes and dad ate six. You know, it's this narrowing. It's all about cupcakes. It's all about celebration, but it's narrowing. And here's an example of the whole with some added details and some added um, information, I guess we could say. And that's really really what we have here in four and five. We have the church being scattered and they're doing this. And Philip, an example of the church, is also scattered and doing this. Now, there's something else I find interesting about these two verses that I want to draw to your attention. If you look closely, it's the movement The movement of the church, for example, the movement of the church is stated passively in verse 4, right? They had been scattered. It had been done to them. This is something they had to endure. They had been scattered. But notice the movement of Philip in verse 5 is stated actively. He went down. Now, you may think, who cares? But I think there is a point going on here in these two verses, And that's this, you know, this scattering of the church is is being done to them, there's no doubt. It's being done to them. But there's also a sense of intentionality to it, isn't there? It's also not only on the part of the believers, but also on the part 
of God. Both things are happening simultaneously. Passive recipients of the circumstances, but then also an active participation, both of God and of God's people. Now think back for a moment and remember Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which I quoted at the beginning of our time together. This was the assignment that Christ gave to his church. Remember, they were to be his witnesses, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and they were to be witnesses in Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now up until Acts 8, they have been strong in Jerusalem. They've been in Jerusalem witnessing to the Jews. But then you go to Acts chapter 8, our text, verse 1. And it describes the church going, look at this, throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. First time that they've left Jerusalem in this, in this book of the Bible to take the message outward to Judea and Samaria. And then notice Philip's movement in verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria. See, there's persecution at this time, tribulation, absolutely. And yes, the church was passively being scattered. But at the same time, God was actively using this persecution to mobilize his people to accomplish the assignment, to accomplish the assignment that he had given them. And in verses 4 and 5, we also notice in these parallel verses that both the church and Philip, they were also active. Not only is God active, moving his church about to mobilize them in the midst of this, this tragedy, but also Philip and the church are active. They're actively responding to, the passive, to passively being scattered. It says that they went about, in verse 4, preaching the word as a church. And then in verse 5, he, Philip, began proclaiming Christ to them. See, God may have allowed his church to experience a time of tribulation in Acts chapter 8, but God also used this time of tribulation to mobilize his church for their faithful proclamation. God is not absent when scattering takes place. As a family, as a church family at Oak Ridge, we have been scattered. We are scattered right now. There's no getting around that fact. That's, that's been done to us. That is a circumstance that we have had to receive and respond to passively. It's been done to us. But I wonder, have we stopped just to reflect on the fact that God may be working actively in this? That he is still working. In spite of us passively re receiving this hardship, God is still working. We know that God is more concerned with our holiness than our happiness. You know, he's more concerned with our consecration than our comfort. That is how he operates. And with that in mind, we should be asking the question as we reflect on the last eight months and the months ahead, what is God actively doing? What is he doing in my life, in my home, in my, my heart? What is he doing in our church? What is he up to? What is he bringing about actively in all of this? What is he actively exposing or showing or growing or killing in my life through this tribulation? And what about us? What are we actively doing during this time for God's glory? We remember just from verses four and five that, that the church being scattered went preaching the word. And Philip, being scattered, went proclaiming Christ. So are we being like them, and are you being like Philip? Am I being like Philip? What is God doing in our midst during this time, this time that we have passively received? And at the same time, what are we doing in spite of what we have passively received? Now this newborn church in Acts chapter 8, this newborn church in Jerusalem, was enduring tribulation, but they were enduring it with bold proclamation. It's inspiring, it's humbling, really. They were an unrelenting witness in the face of hardship. That's okay, what was the result? What happened because of their proclamation in the face of tribulation? Well, it was celebration. Look at verses 6 and 7. 
The crowds, this is in Samaria where Philip went, the crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So Philip, being an exemplar of the whole church, he went where the persecution sent him, declaring the truth about Jesus. I don't want this contrast to be lost on us. Here we have a man who's displaced, Remember, he's been sent out from Jerusalem. He's lost his home. We don't even know. He's lost. He's been displaced, and yet he's preaching stability. He's destitute. He may have lost everything, and yet he's preaching hope. And he is facing prison, yet he is preaching freedom. This is a man with nothing who is going forth with joy, proclaiming what he was told to proclaim. And the Sumerians, the people who hear him, they're captivated by the message, aren't they? They are, they're locking their collective attention on Philip and, and hearing the words of God from him and seeing the power of God working through him. They can't get enough of this guy. And if we were to scan down and look at verse 12, we see that not only are they seeing and hearing Philip, but they're actually believing and they're saved and baptized. And with that in mind, verse 8 makes a lot of sense. So there was much rejoicing in that city. Celebration. See, we see here that God uses this time of tribulation not only to mobilize his church, but also to grow his church. He used, in spite of the passive circumstances that the church was having to endure, God was at work, Philip was at work, and they brought about this time of celebration. Not only was God growing the church numerically, people were being saved, but certainly the believers were being encouraged and built up and matured through all of this. Now back to the 21st century, going from the 1st to the 21st. Are we experiencing hardship today? Yeah, I think so. I think we can say that there's been some tribulation in the past year. Can God use those tribulations for opportunities for gospel proclamation? Yeah, you bet he can. And are there reasons now? Have there been reasons and will there be reasons in the future to celebrate what God has done during this time? Yeah, there will be. We say that with faith and we say that knowingly, that there will be, absolutely. That is especially true if we as a church scatter with purpose. If we scatter with, the scattering is happening to us, but we can go like Philip did with some intentionality and scatter with purpose. Like the church here in in Acts chapter eight, we are scattered and some of us are scared and some of us are even suffering more than others. We need to learn how to minister to one another in these new circumstances, in this new climate. But we are like the church in Acts chapter 8, suffering and scattered and, and some are scared. But, but also like them, our purpose and our goal and our divine task has not changed. Remember, in the first century, they went forth, but with the, the Lord's words ringing in their ears, be my witnesses, be my witnesses, not only to those who don't know me yet, but also to those who do know me. Witness to people for me. Build up the church, both numerically by saving people and also by maturing the believers in your midst. So their task had not changed. It hasn't changed since then either. Our task at Oak Ridge Bible Chapel was the same two years ago, 10 years ago. will be 10 years from now if the Lord tarries. And it's the same right now during this time of tribulation. And the question becomes, are we scattering now with a purpose? Are we scattering with intentionality? Trusting that God can still do today what he did in the first century. That he can use tribulation to bring about celebration through proclamation. That is the question. Are we scattering with a purpose? And so I want to help us to do that based on this text this week. Just two things I want us to consider doing this week. To scatter with a purpose. 
The first is to identify the Sumerians in our lives. And here's what I mean. Are there people in your life now that you really didn't have a whole lot to do with a year ago? That because of this scattering have been brought into your life and you have now more face time with them than you did before. Philip, remember, would not have met Sumerians had Stephen not been martyred. And he was sent out of Jerusalem and all of a sudden he's met with the Sumerians who he would not have seen otherwise and he takes out of opportunity and he proclaims Christ to them. In our lives, there are probably people in our lives that a year ago we didn't have as much to do with as we do right now because of the scattering. For some of us, it may be a spouse who is now a captive audience. They can't go anywhere. They're locked down. For some of us, it's kids. We have more face time with our kids or adult children who are home from school and living in the house and now we have more time with them. For some of us and all of us, it's the tech guy at our company or whatever. Everyone's got a tech guy now, right? That has to run the Zoom meetings. Whoever it is, prayerfully consider, even just as this service comes to a close today, who has the Lord actively brought into my life this year because of the scattering that I wouldn't have met otherwise? And just pick one. And then after you've identified that person, here's the second thing I want us to do this week. Not that hard. Pray for that person every day this week and more specifically, the relationship you have with them. Say, Lord, I don't think that it was an accident that now I have FaceTime with them, that I have, have contact with them. You're actively working here. I've passively received these circumstances, and yet I know you are active, and I want to be active too. Lord, I'm praying for this person. Give me a chance. Give me an opportunity. If they're a believer, I want to encourage them. I want to, to provoke them on toward Christ-likeness. If they're not a believer, I want to share with them the good news. Father, give me an opening. Give me an opportunity. And when that opportunity comes, give me boldness. That's all we're going to do this week. That's all we're going to do. Easy, right? Super easy. Identify the Sumerian in your life, one person, and pray for that person every day for an opportunity to share the good news, to actively share the good news with them. Your 2020 is behind us, and there's been tribulation, but the call to proclaim, that idea of proclamation has not waned. It's still there. And there will be celebration. There is celebration. We just need to be faithful as a church. Let's pray to those ends right now as Gisela comes to lead us in one closing song. Heavenly Father, we pray for those in our midst, part of our church family, that have experienced lamentation. We pray for them often, Father, but we pray for them as a body now. You know who they are. Comfort them, we pray. Comfort them. And for everyone else in our church family who has experienced this time of tribulation in different ways, Father, we pray that you minister to not only all of us as a church family, but to individual members of it. We ask that you be the God of all grace and peace that you have promised to be. Be with us, we pray. And Father, we now lift our eyes up from what was and what we've lost and what we're mourning. And those are very real, but Father, we want to lift our eyes up to activity, to intentionality. We want to say, Father, what have you got in store for us? We want to be active just as you have been active through this time and are still active now. Father, reveal to each member of Oak Ridge and all those listening online, who are the people in our lives that you have actively brought in for such a time as this? Father, we pray for them right now. We say, give us a chance. Give us an opportunity to speak into those relationships. Father, that you may be known for the first time in all your salvific glory or that you may be known in a way that strengthens the believer. Father, we ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.